This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Amara, Joanna, Emmeline, Tim, and Sam. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's kick things off with a couple of serious questions. Today we have questions from Amara and from Joanna. First, here's Amara's question. What does oppress mean? Well, a few weeks ago, the prophet Zechariah reminded us that all the prophets God sent before the fall of Jerusalem had warned the people to end their oppressive ways. In particular, he singled out a, a group of people, widows, the fatherless, the sojourners, and the poor, and he said, stop oppressing them. So the question is, what exactly does it mean to oppress someone? What is oppression, and how do we know when we're oppressing people? Oppression is when you use your power, your position to take advantage of other people. Instead of loving people and serving them the way that we've been called to do, when we use our strength to overrule and overpower them, to unfairly take advantage of their position of weakness, that is oppression. And that's the thing that God says we shouldn't do. Remember, we're supposed to love our neighbors, even our enemies. And loving people just doesn't go with oppressing them. Now, if you think about the people that Zechariah singles out, the widows, the fatherless, the sojourners or foreigners, and the poor, well, all of these people are people who are especially vulnerable in society. They don't have as much natural protection as other people, and so they're easier to abuse and to take advantage of. The widow no longer has the protection of her husband. The fatherless no longer have the protection of their fathers. The sojourners don't have the the, the advantages that natural-born citizens do. And of course, the poor don't have the resources, the, the money and the influence to make their lives comfortable. Now, because of that, their position is especially precarious. And also, they're the people it's easiest to oppress, the people it's easiest to take advantage of. So the idea here is that if we can take care of the most vulnerable people, if we don't oppress or take advantage of them, then we won't oppress or take advantage of other people as well. Like if we're careful to protect the people, it would be easiest to oppress, then we won't be guilty of oppressing the people who are stronger either. God says that we don't get to treat people badly, even if we can get away with doing it. Even if in this life there could be no punishment because we're so much stronger or have more advantages than they do. 
We are called to treat everyone the way that we want to be treated. And we have to treat other people the way that we would treat God, because other people are made in God's image. And Jesus actually says that when we serve those who are made in his image, we are serving him. So oppression is taking unfair advantage. And when God tells us not to oppress, he's telling us to treat people with love and with care. Now Joanna asks, Jesus said that we should love our enemies. Does that mean we should love Satan? (laughs) Well, this is a great question. Joanna, you're absolutely right. We must love our enemies. Jesus teaches this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Love your enemies, he says, and pray for those who persecute you. So absolutely, we should love our enemies. And you're also right that Satan is your enemy. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter calls Satan your adversary. He says the devil is, is seeking you out and wants to devour you like a lion would devour his prey. So definitely, Satan is your enemy. So if, as Jesus says, we must love our enemies... And if, as Peter says, Satan is your enemy, it makes perfect sense to say that you should love the devil. Then again, when I say that out loud, it doesn't make any sense at all. Because the Bible says that we should flee from Satan, that we should be on guard against his traps, that we should resist his temptations. We should reject him and the evil that he stands for. So, What's going on here? Well, we need to circle back a little bit to the Sermon on the Mount, to what Jesus is talking about. Now, in that sermon, Jesus is teaching human beings how to relate to one another as God's creatures. So what he's saying applies to human beings and human relationships. He's not addressing the question of our relationship to what the Bible calls spiritual powers. But he's talking about human-to-human relationships. Now, there's a common wisdom in Jesus' day, and this is true in our time too, that you should love the people who love you, and you should hate the people who hate you. And this is the way most people live their lives. We're very affectionate and considerate towards people who are considerate towards us, And when people don't like us or treat us badly, we feel free to treat them badly as well. Jesus recognizes that that's the way of the world, but he says that you are called to love the people who hate you. Not just the ones who love you, but the ones who hate you. And to pray for those who persecute you. So, in a sense... We're being called to love everyone for God's sake, not based on what they deserve, not based on how they treat us, but based on whether or not they're made in the image of God, and they all are. So, 
Jesus is not teaching us to love the devil, to love demons, or to love evil. Of course not. What he's teaching us is to treat our fellow human beings with love, a love that is based on the fact that they reflect God's image so that we treat them based on how we see and love God. And that's what Jesus means when he says that we should love even our enemies. Now it's time for the big question. This week's big question comes from Emmeline. Emmeline asks, If God knew that the Assyrians would conquer the Israelites, why did he save them? The context for Emmeline's question comes from Dan Reed's sermon on Jonah chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago. Before we go any further, let's remind ourselves of the situation that Jonah faced. Remember, God sent Jonah to announce his judgments on the people of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Jonah doesn't obey at first, but eventually he gets to Nineveh and he preaches that judgment. And surprisingly, the Ninevites repent. So God doesn't destroy them after all. But here's the thing. In history, the Assyrian Empire would later go on to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, scatter the people who were there, and they would settle new tribes in the land. And that's how the New Testament land of Samaria came into existence. So Emmeline's question is, if God knew in advance that the Assyrians were going to do this, then why would he save them from destruction? Now, To be perfectly honest, I think that's exactly what Jonah wanted to know. Remember, when God first sent Jonah, he didn't want to go. He ran in the opposite direction. And when he did finally go to Nineveh, and as a result of his preaching, that wicked city turned away from its sin and repented, Jonah wasn't happy about it. Jonah was angry. He was resentful. Now, the prophet Jonah wasn't stupid. He knew what a threat the Assyrians were to Israel. Now, seeing God destroy the Assyrians, that would have been a relief to Jonah. But instead, God spared them, and he wanted to know why. Well, here's the thing. God didn't just know that the Assyrians would later conquer Israel. He ordained it. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, we're told that God stirred up the heart of the king of Assyria to take some of the tribes captive as a punishment. And if you read Hosea chapter 13, you'll find a prophetic warning to Israel that Assyria would conquer them as a form of judgment on their disobedience. In other words, in order to chastise the rebellious people, God used the Assyrian empire to humble them. Now, one of the things I've mentioned in studying Zechariah is that after the exile, the people need to be reminded of why the exile happened in the first place. Jerusalem didn't fall because of the Assyrians or later the Babylonians. It wasn't because Israel's enemies were unstoppable. It was because the people of God were rebellious and God judged them by raising up their enemies over them. 
You'll often hear us say that bad things happen in the world as a consequence of human sin. Well, this is a good example of how that works. Now, in most cases, there's not going to be a one-to-one connection. You can't say, well, this bad thing happened because of that sin. In fact, trying to do that can really get you mixed up. But in some cases, like this one, God actually tells us why the bad thing happened. Well, the bad thing was Assyria conquering Israel, and that thing happened because of the sin of rebellion and idolatry, which God punished. Now, that helps us to see in general how the consequences are related to the cause, how the punishment or the judgment is related to the sin. Even in our own lives, when we are rebellious, God is very patient, but sometimes his love prompts him to correct us. And that correction can come in the form of punishments, defeats, setbacks, frustrations. All of these are meant to wake us up and to make us turn back to God. In other words, when we see warnings of judgment or when we experience actual consequences of our sin, we should be like the Ninevites and repent. Now for our closing segment, let's take on some fun questions from Tim and Sam. Tim must have a sweet tooth because he wants some advice about candy. He asks, what is your favorite type of candy? Well, Tim, I've talked a lot on the big question about how much I love Reese's peanut butter cups, especially when they've been frozen. Other than that, though, I don't really eat a lot of candy. Uh, Lori is the one who loves candy, so I asked her what her favorites are. She likes cinnamon hard candy. She also likes something called Swedish fish, which I never heard of before. And obviously she likes gum too, especially bubble gum, because she really likes blowing big bubbles with her gum. I guess I'm just not as interesting when it comes to candy. Apart from Reese's peanut butter cups, the only thing that's candy-like for me is probably breath mints, which is pretty embarrassing to admit. Finally, Sam wants to know, how old are you? Well, Sam, you know, as a general rule, it is rude to ask old people how old they are. But in this case, I understand perfectly. Because I look so young, and yet I possess the wisdom of a very, very ancient man, it's no surprise that Sam is curious about my age, and of course, I'm happy to share what that age is. So Sam, if you want to know how old I am, I am two score and ten years old. Uh, If you don't know what two score and 10 means, I'll make it a little bit easier for you. I'll give you my age in Roman numerals, which is what we used to use back when I was a kid. So in Roman numerals, my age is the letter L. (laughs) Well, if you can't figure that out, I have to wonder, how old are you? Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. 
So until next time, keep asking the big questions.